Terry Brown has a big job, protecting one of the most historic sites in America. Terry is the superintendent at Fort Monroe National Monument in Norfolk, Virginia. It's a site that includes Old Point Comfort, where historians believe the first Africans set foot in British North America. If you ask Terry, Fort Monroe isn't just historical, it's also breathtaking. Oh my, it's beautiful. I mean, if you come through the main gates of Fort Monroe, it looks and feels like a military base. And it's fascinating. You have all these old military buildings. Um, As you drive down the main road, there's these beautiful trees, these crepe myrtles that just, they hug you as you drive down the road. Uh, You see plenty of ships going by. It's a beautiful scene. I mean, actually, at times when I walk around the fort, I'm I'm taken aback more or less by the, the view. The view shed is amazing. Terry stays busy at Fort Monroe, giving tours to thousands of people who visit the site each year. Fortunately, I was able to catch up with him recently and ask what it was like to introduce so many people to such an important space. I started by asking Terry to tell me about the stories of Fort Monroe and what he tells visitors about the site's significance. Well, I think, you know, it's so easy to come to Point Comfort. It's so beautiful. Like I said earlier, you can come to this fort, you can enjoy the the, the military was here for 190 years, so you have these historic buildings. Um, you have the beach, and you have, you know, we have a lighthouse that date back to 1802. Um, but when you scratch the surface and look at the history, American Indians were fishing and canoeing in the Chesapeake almost 15,000 years ago. It's, it's just, wow. you can make it a national monument just on that story alone. Um, mm-hmm. And then you have the early colonists arriving, Captain John Smith and Christopher Newport, uh, the first Africans. We have the largest stone fort in America, and it was built in part by enslaved people. It's, a, it's just a beautiful uh, piece of resource that we have here. And then, you know, in 1861, May 1861, we have this amazing story that sometimes get kind of pushed to the side because we've been focused on 1619. But in 1861, Virginia, right at the, you know, the start of the war, Virginia seized from the Union. And not, not even a week or two after it leaves the Union, these three men, um, enslaved men, arrive at the gates of Fort Monroe, Frank Baker, James Townsend, and Shepard Mallory. And they asked for asylum. And what, why this is so important is because about a week before they arrived, we know that several enslaved people were, were returned to the Confederates. The Confederates were building fortifications across the waters. Um, then in May 24th, sometime in that time frame, these three men show up at the gate. They ask for asylum. And General Butler, who had just arrived, uh, was sort of a, a, a little thorn in Lincoln's side. He, he was just trying to find a place to put him. And he lands at <laughs> he lands at Fort Monroe, and he makes the decision to keep these gentlemen. And to make a long story short, before we know it, there are people showing up the next day. By Monday, almost 100 people are showing up. By October, we're wow. talking thousands, and then eventually 10,000-plus enslaved people would make their way to Fort Monroe. And over time, they would call it Freedom's Fortress as a result of that. And you have all these contraband camps literally on the parade ground here at Point Comfort. It's just an amazing story. And that would lead to many different policy changes and ultimately the Emancipation Proclamation. So those are two powerful stories on the same 
really quite small piece of territory. How do you bring those together, Terry? I know you have to tell those stories every day. How do you relate them? I think the arc of history is important. I mean, it's not like, you know, you come here and I can show you some artifacts uh, or the footprints of Africans being in this space. And the artful part of this, you know, being in this position, I have to artfully tell people that they were here and that they and that they were relevant. Um, and to convince people that this is important, especially when you don't have too many things you can show them. Um, right. But what I try to convey to folks is that it's not just an African-American story. It's really an American story. And we need to merge all these stories into one. And let's not be afraid to have these conversations about slavery and racism. I mean, my office is the former home of Robert E. Lee. And <laughs> I think he's important to talk about. And Jefferson Davis was in prison here. And all these stories are really complicated. I like to tell people Fort Monroe is truly America. It has classism, it has racism, it has, <laughs> you name it all, it's all inside this little gumbo bowl that we have here. And to top it off with a cherry, in 2011, former President Barack Obama made it a national monument, at least a portion of this fort. And now you're the superintendent of the, this national monument, as you say, embodies so much of American history. Uh, is your job emotionally hard sometimes? That's a lovely question. And oftentimes, I'm, oftentimes, I'm not asked that question. And yes, it is emotional at times. I mean, considering that when I did my DNA recently, I, it takes me back to Cameroon. And it's really fascinating to know I'm Cameroonian. <laughs> Cameroonian. <laughs> um, so when I drive through the gates every day, um, there are times I get really choked up because I know what happened in this space. And it's a huge responsibility. I want the community to be proud of what I'm doing. And I think, you know, I know that slavery was, it was harsh, it was painful, and it has a lot of um, mixed emotions in the, in, the, in the theme itself. So, you know, I try to tell everybody that slavery screwed us all up. And because I am, I'm so close to it, I, I struggle with it sometimes. Um, but I know that as long as I'm in this uniform, and I know that as long as I love this great country and I want it to be better, it, you know, the Constitution doesn't say that we're a perfect union. It, it says in order to form a more perfect union. And I take that to mean that we all need to participate. And sometimes that, that means that it, it brings in the ugly parts of our history. Um, with the country being only 230 years old, um, you can go to England or Africa, and they have ashtrays older in our country. So we're we're literally just learning how to be a country, um, and I think we all just need to figure this thing out. Terry Brown is superintendent at Fort Monroe National Monument in Norfolk, Virginia.
Terry and I have been working together to help commemorate the arrival of the first Africans in what becomes British North America in a week or two at Fort Monroe. And it's been very interesting to see what this looks like up close. The anxiety, the struggle with nomenclature, the debates over where the first African people first arrived. Old Point Comfort versus Jamestown. It's uh, interesting to see how complicated it is, even in, in commemoration. I'm just wondering what it looks like at a little more distance. Part of what's interesting about it is directly related to what you just said, Ed, which is when you don't think very deeply, the commemoration of anything seems very straightforward, <laughs> right, right? right? It's like it's something that publicly we're going to announce and, and do something and mm-hmm. you know say something official. But in this case, you don't have to dig very far to get at all of these complexities about what is being commemorated, what kind of commemoration is appropriate, what kinds of beginnings and endings are we talking about, who are we including? You know, I mean, it's on social media. There's now, as of the last few days, um, a debate between historians about this very issue about, is it slavery before slavery is institutionalized? Do we call it that or not call it that? What does that mean? Were these people, were they enslaved or were they, um, as Cassandra Newby Alexander says, unfree? Is that a better way of putting it? So it's amazing that it's, it's not very far beneath the surface, historically speaking, which I suppose makes perfect sense because it's not very far beneath the surface of the United States as a nation As a whole, the question of race and where it fits and how we grapple with it in America's history. Right. Yeah, I mean, it feels that the volume is going to really be raised on this particular commemoration because of that number, right, 400. And Mm -hmm. and what that number means relative to the age of the nation itself, which, you know, really is a, a humbling thing to consider, right, that the institution of slavery, even as an ill-defined set of practices that is, is largely without a name in North America, you know, in terms of it being an institution, that that still precedes the establishment of the United States. And therefore, it connects directly to the debate as to whether or not slavery is, you know, part of the country's DNA, to use one of the ways mm-hmm. that this problem is framed. And so my, my sense, at least, is that a lot of what is creating concern or that raises apprehensions about what to do with this particular anniversary has to do with what it means about America. And if we are, in fact, younger as a nation than slavery itself, then we have to acknowledge that there's some kind of indebtedness that the country's own greatness or prominence or complexities has in this institution. Yeah, and I think that uh, juxtaposition is made even clearer by the simultaneous celebration as opposed to commemoration of the birth Mm. of representative democracy uh, in the same colony at the same time. And so that whole struggle between who are we really is played out in a kind of a theater. What would you all think about that? I mean, does is there something lost or by having these commemorations kind of woven together or is it a useful reminder? Well, I I think it's important to to always weave together, to the extent that you can, people's experiences across the color line, right, to use a very 20th century formulation, right? I mean, that if if you have, you know, people who were imagining freedom um, in the colony of Virginia, right, which is a very famous book that we all know and love, right, Edmund Morgan's American Slavery, American Freedom, that, you know, Virginia becomes a really important birthplace for both the formalization of the slave institution and for these ideas about democracy coming from 
from Jefferson and others. And so you can't in, in some way disentangle not even just the, the ideas or the abstractions, but like the geography of America's founding um, from, you know, the slavery democracy couplet. Um, but I, I guess there's also something that's embedded even more in, in what's a contemporary debate now about the country and its identity, which is to say, you know, it's important to mark the arrival of slavery as an institution in the British colonies. But if we recognize that there is a, a Spanish or at least an Iberian version of slavery in the Americas almost a full century before we even get to what happens in Virginia in 1619, then that actually also changes what we are as a country, right? That we're, in fact, a nation with both Spanish roots and with English roots. And that also, I think, is a, right. is a very touchy proposition for a lot of people. Well, and, you know, I mean, commemorations obviously they like firsts <laughs> you know right. commemorations right. are about the first of whatever but what what's as you're suggesting here nathan what's interesting and significant here is that really what's more accurate and meaningful is that taking take away the firsts and what ultimately becomes the United States is just part of this longer narrative a, a right. much longer and more tangled story which really is in a sense the way history isn't told very often and should be told more often. Right, right. And, and, and that's the thing that I think for a lot of people um, makes the 1619 moment such um, a bittersweet one, which is to say that this in, in, in many ways is kind of a, a, an occurrence of maritime accident, right? That a ship gets raided, its cargo gets kind of moved out of the normal traffic of Atlantic slavery at the time. Um, and yet from that moment, you then have this larger saga about, you know, the United States and its own, you know, centuries-long struggle with, you know, capitalism and with racism and with its own sense of democracy and identity. Um, and that, too, is a powerful thing, right, that, that this moment that easily could not have happened ends up becoming a starter for a, a whole host of generational struggles that, frankly, the country is still very much grappling with. Um, and, and I wonder if, if, there, if that, too, is, is a lesson to think about um, around this anniversary, which is simply to say that there are a lot of people who want to do hand-wringing and kind of gnashing their teeth about, say, election cycles or what feel like aberrations in the normal sweep of a kind of progressive nation. But I wonder if, if the lessons of 1619 are also about having a certain kind of perspective, perspective about what the unforeseen consequences can be of, you know, countries that are still trying to, as we are, figure it out, right, and in some ways get, get the question of democracy right. 